and what's going on? Welcome to the very first episode of the second season of the Pocket Coach Podcast. This recording following this piece of audio that I'm doing right now (laughs) is the most detailed webinar I have ever done on the brain and as to how to find happiness in the brain. So we go into details around what the brain is, uh, what neuroplasticity is, so speaking a little bit about how to create change within the brain and what changes within the brain. And we bust many myths that are around on social media around neuroplasticity. So many myths out there. So many myths about personal development and self-growth, about what it is and how to do it. So we bust a lot of those myths and we actually go into detail into the science of as to how you can actually do this at the neurological level. We speak a little bit more about that. We speak a bit about hormones and we dive into some questions that some people had around mental health, around finding happiness, around what happiness really is compared to what people perceive it to be, about the misconception of enjoyment being happiness. And we do touch on a few chemicals and we go into some details around that so you can learn a little bit of science as well. And of course, we really start to break happiness down as to understanding not just what it is, but how you can allow it and enable it within yourself, even with a very tough mental health issue maybe going on in your life or various issues, as these are very common. So buckle up, be ready, because it's a long one. Um, I encourage you to take notes for sure, um, because there is a lot of information in this. Uh, so whether you re-listen to it a few times or you listen to it once in the car and then again when you're sitting down, um, whatever works for you, I'd encourage you to really take in as much as you can here. So without further ado, enjoy. ourselves to learn a bit about the brain and a bit about happiness what it really is what's going on with this thing we called happiness this feeling we called happiness what's actually going on at the level of the brain and how do we create it how do we sustain it how do we create this state within the brain that is that state of happiness without constantly being disrupted by life around us and uh, the life around us constantly taking us away from this concept we call happiness. That's what this is about. Right. So I think the first thing that I should do before I dive into anything, talking about the brain or talking about happiness or anything like that, is to speak a little bit about myself first. Now, um, otherwise, you're not really going to really get where I'm coming from with some other things. So I feel like it's probably important to paint a little picture of where I'm coming from first. So I've actually suffered quite severely from depression and anxiety myself, uh, starting from, uh, quite honestly, about year seven or first form, I think that is. I'm trying to remember it, <laughs> which one it was. Um, and uh, yeah, honestly, I was consumed by depression for a long time. Um, I didn't know it was depression, had no idea until my counselor at the time actually um, brought that to light. Um, she's like, well, it's pretty clear you've got depression. I'm like, okay, good. Now what? Now what? <laughs> what do I do with it? So, uh, yeah, from there, she gave me a little bit of guidance, although um, the guidance was more in the form of how to work around it or work with it rather than actually how to move through it. Um, and I wanted to move through it. Um, so that became a bit of a stagnant process for me. It was working um, with um, various counselors actually I had the same issue it was there was constant um, a constant light where the, the like the idea of working around it and finding patterns and 
um, making it a feasible thing in my life rather than actually um, solving what the root of it was. Um, of course, there's various therapists out there that are fantastic at doing this. Um, I think maybe I just had the luck of the draw, I'm not sure, but um, I, I couldn't necessarily shift the feeling that, I, that was going on within me. I could only really shift some understandings of what was triggering it and what was bringing it to light, um, but the actual feeling itself just wouldn't go away, even though I understood it more. When I went to a doctor, um, yeah, again, um, filled out a seven-step questionnaire, and um, yeah, this the depression came to the surface again, um, talk about anxiety as well. Um, the doctor offered me medication. I said no, mainly out of pride actually at the time. Um, I'm really glad that was the case just because of the research that I came across much later, the literature I came across later about medication. It's, no, I'm not saying it's a bad thing, it's a great thing, um, but I just mean in terms of um, if I didn't really need it, which um, I found alternatives, I actually ended up taking uh, St. John's wort, which is a more natural approach to stimulating serotonin, reducing cortisol in the system. Serotonin, this calm uh, feeling of I have enough, I am enough, that's serotonin. Cortisol being this more prolonged uh, stress hormone in the body. And um, yeah, it helped um, play around with that a bit with uh, with St. John's wort, and that brought a little bit of more peace in my life, which was nice. However, the um, yeah the actual thought patterns weren't solved. Right, the thought patterns that were actually stimulating the anxiety and the depression that were at large within myself. Yeah, they didn't shift, they didn't change, they didn't go away. So yeah, after all this, seeing counsellors and therapists and trying St. John's Wort, saying no to medication, um, I eventually got to a point where I thought maybe I should take medication. Um, and I'll speak a bit, a little bit, of, I'll touch on medication briefly in this. Um, I'm not here to tell anyone whether they should or shouldn't do anything like that. But um, yeah, please don't ever demonise medication. It's an important, very important thing in society. Um, I, I was just, um, yeah, I was lucky enough to come across certain, um, yeah, certain practices and certain weight methods and ways about going about my anxiety and depression, um, that helped me move through it without the use of medication. Thank God. Um, yeah, because that can be um, a very detrimental thing for many people. I know many people that have come to me for the services that I provide, which is around anxiety and mental health. And, um, uh, yeah, I've actually been more messed up through medication than, um, actually helped um, so yeah there's a lot of things that can happen but um, yeah definitely please don't demonize it please use it if you feel you need it but at the same time if you don't feel you need it um, yeah this is what this stuff is for um, the talk about happiness in the brain and uh, yeah speaking bringing this stuff to light so people can actually find more practical feasible methods within their life that they can just use in terms of applying different habits to create a bit more peace and joy in their lives so that um, they can start to solve what's going on deep down rather than basically um, a, tuning into the chemical basis of the issue instead of actually looking at what's causing the chemical issue. Right? So if we solve the chemical basis, it doesn't solve the root, unfortunately. Now, over the course of this, right, I was suffering with depression quite a lot. Um, felt like I didn't want to be here. Um, I, over time, started to meditate. I started to meditate when I was maybe 17, 18, here and there. Um, and eventually meditation became more of a um, strong practice within my life around about, I uh, must have been 21, 20 years old, 21 years old. And I, uh, long story short, I was watching my favorite fitness YouTuber, Steve Cook, that's his name. And I saw that um, you could um, have a certain morning practice. You'd get up every morning and do 50 push-ups and 50 sit-ups. I'm like, oh, I want to be like Steve Cook. 
So I got up every morning and did 50 push-ups and 50 sit-ups. <laughs> Felt awesome. Like, yeah, I'm making progress. Like, I'm, I'm going to become like, this lively guy like him. Um, yeah, and even over that course, he also uh, started to meditate. He introduced me to this app called Headspace. It's a very popular app now. Back then, no one had heard of it. Um, it was like this brand new app that had come out about meditation. And um, I thought, you know what, I'm going to try it. Steve Cook's doing it. I'm going to keep doing my push-ups and sit-ups. And I'm also going to, uh, um, yeah, I'm also going to meditate. So I brought in a 10-minute meditation practice every day. And what I started to notice is that over um, doing this meditation practice, over time, over time, it took me quite a while because I couldn't sit still for a minute to start with. Uh, but it's definitely feasible for anyone once, um, yeah, once that routine set and once they're um, consistent with it. Uh, over time, I started to feel much more calm. Interestingly enough, I stopped reacting as much to situations I had previously reacted to. So I knew that some growth was happening. And I noticed that when I didn't meditate on those days um, that I didn't, I was more reactive. So I started to realize uh, that there was some sort of difference that was happening at that level. And something came to the surface more. It was anxiety. I don't know what this was. I don't know what was going on. It was interesting to see that even though I was meditating, anxiety was growing. So although my depression spells were becoming less deep and less frequent, they were still deep and frequent, but not as much. And as anxiety rose, as I became a busier guy because I felt motivated to actually put myself out there, I started to uh, create thoughts of not being enough and um, thoughts of overwhelm and overthinking and all this different stuff because I had more stuff in my life going on because I had the ability to put myself out there rather than just stay in my room all day and watch anime. Love anime. Okay. Still do. And... Um, yeah, as anxiety rose, it crippled me. Had many panic attacks. Oh, frick it. Yeah, really, really screwed my life up a lot, honestly. Um, yeah, but over time, I had, had the blessing of, in about 2018, coming across two Instagram accounts that, quite frankly, saved me. And I say saved me, not in terms of it resolved it, but in terms of it sent me on the right path. I was so stubborn about the idea of needing to do it myself. Because, I mean, why would it be good enough if I had to get someone else's help? I already don't feel good enough. So getting someone else's help will make me feel worse. That's how I felt at the time, genuinely. But it was until I came across these two accounts that helped me resonate actually more deeply with what was going on. I started to understand more deeply about the issue of depression and anxiety at deeper layers of the mind. And uh, these two accounts were um, Dr. Nicole Lepera, aka the holistic psychologist, who I had the blessing of working with for a little bit when she was first um, coming out as um, an online practitioner. So I was really lucky then because I'd gotten quite early. And um, in fact, she's actually one, my first person that I interviewed on my podcast. So I'll introduce you to that as well, which is great. And then um, Young Pueblo, which is a, he's a writer. He's a meditator and a writer. So he writes a lot about um, his experiences around meditation, about um, his experiences around depression and um, yeah, his, um, his growth through that. So as I resonated with the stuff, I, um, and I started to work at more the mindfulness level, not just meditation. Yes, it's an aspect of mindfulness, but I was only acting on meditation as a routine, as a habit. I wasn't, I wasn't meditating for the sake of actually getting to the deep roots of what was going on. I wasn't solving any trauma. I wasn't working through any thought patterns. I was simply meditating for calmness because I wanted to feel calmer, right? I wanted to feel better about myself, but I was, didn't want to work through anything. Um, I was unconscious about that at the time, but that was actually what was going on. And uh, yeah, as I started to adopt more mindful practices, I started to notice that 
I've really started to shift in a positive manner. I actually started to feel different now compared to when I was working, when I was just doing talk therapy. I started to feel better. Um, and then along this course, I started working with a coach. Um, so this, this was a coach that introduced me to even deeper layers of that. I started to shift my meditation practice to actually going deeper. Um, eventually, I started meditating almost an hour a day. Um, getting really deep and this was like unguided um, just purely going deep into myself and honestly most of the depression spells and the anxiety spells started to lift and this was over a long course of time right over a long course of time so over the course of about maybe two three years of doing this work um, with not really too much direction aside from the work that I was doing with my coach um, but outside of that very scattered and uh, yeah, I also got the opportunity to go to a, a retreat with a ex-Buddhist monk from Burma. Um, it, was, it was brilliant. That honestly helped me deepen even further. And then, um, yeah, along this course, I then, because of my passion around mental health, because of my own issues, of course, don't want anyone to suffer that way. I mean, anyone that here that has experienced mental health issues, illnesses in any way, don't you feel the same, right? Why would you want anyone else to feel that way? It's the most sufferable problematic experiences that's, um, that can happen within. It's, it's a really, really big issue out there. It's a very common issue. I mean, look, we're all here because we want to look for more happiness. I mean, uh, it's more common than we think. It really is. Um, and throughout all this, um, as I stepped into this more and more, I naturally wanted to try to apply a more proper structure to how I could help people. So, yeah, I started coaching and uh, moved away from the fitness world that I was in at the time, Good old, um, he, uh, gosh, I can't even freaking remember the name. It's been that long almost. Headley Fitness. Was, so my last name's Headley. I called it Headley Fitness. And yeah, I was doing all this fitness stuff. I was super loud, super um, quick with everything, um, never present. And um, yeah, as I transitioned to Coach Keza, um, yeah, I started to apply more of these mindful practices and um, yeah, all, all these, all this education around, um, I started studying neuroscience as well, um, and brought all this stuff together and compiled it and started to make it more feasible for people. And then I've had the opportunity ever since, since April, 2019, um, of actually doing the um, yeah, deep work with other people in a very structured way. And of course, as I've grown, I've had the opportunity to, to, to help others grow as well. And, um, yeah, I, of course, as well, uh, co-run alongside these Two beautiful humans, Maddie and Libby. Uh, they will be presenting a little bit later for a little bit, and um, yeah, we run this program. Um, this well, sorry, um, uh, group called Thrive. Okay, you can find it on Facebook. You just type in the Thrive Organization, completely free, non-profit. I'm um, doing sharing circles, and um, we'll do so much more going forward. And um, that's also why I do these talks. Um, this isn't to talk about my business. I will talk about it a little bit later, but. It's only for those that feel that they'll benefit. This is actually genuinely to serve society. I, if I came across this stuff when I was going through anxiety and depression, it would have ch completely changed things for me. And knowing that, that's what motivates me to do this stuff. So that's a little bit about me. I think it's time to talk about happiness. That's what we're here for. I'm here for to hear about Karen. All right, who needs to hear about Karen? Nah, you're going to hear that anyway. Sorry. So uh, I'd love to actually put this on you now, guys. Happiness. What is it? How do you define it? What is a feeling of happiness specifically? Genuinely ask yourself that. What actually is it? Some people say family. 
Some people say drinking a nice cup of green tea. <laughs> okay. Some people say anime. Right. Um, <laughs> some people say when they're with certain people in their lives or they're having great conversations or they're having a lot of food or when they look good. All right. There's many things that people might say. Some people just might say, oh, that fuzzy feeling I get. Right? Some people say, might say their spouse or their loved one. And some people might define it more specifically in terms of actually what the feeling is. So that's what I'm going for here. What the feeling of happiness is. Because within, within happiness, we've got, you know, love, it feels good. We've got joy, it feels good as well. We've got enjoyment, it feels great. Excitement. Compassion. These are all different. It's all different when we actually get down to the chemical basis. So I'd actually like to ask you what happiness is. So it's not excitement. It's not even joy or enjoyment. Or not even love. It's a completely separate thing on its own. So actually ask yourself what that feeling is. And I'd even like to invite you guys. And this is why I actually wanted to invite you, if you feel comfortable to, to have your video on. Only if you feel comfortable to, you don't have to. Um, to actually raise your hand if you feel. And this is actually quite important. This isn't going to just benefit you. This is also going to benefit those that are on this call a lot. What do you feel happiness is? Awesome. I love that. Yeah, so, I mean... You can't really, I suppose, put a specific definition to what happiness is in terms of the feeling for everyone. But that's why I'm asking you guys and putting it on you guys, because what is it for you? That's what's important. Not what is it for the next person, right? We say these definitions because it might stimulate something in you, and that's why I encourage you guys to share. But it's going to be individual in terms of the actual experience. And why is that? Simply because the actual chemical experience and the chemical basis within is always going to be different for every individual. So the actual chemical basis of the reaction that's occurring within is going to be different for everyone for when it comes to happiness. So that's why for every single person on here, we might if I was to put you all in separate rooms, you'll use everyone here would absolutely use different words, okay, to describe happiness in terms of the feeling, simply because it's going to be a slightly subtly different experience for everyone. Okay. But ultimately, happiness Right. The way I like to say it is an experience that is a natural phenomenon when peace is the basis. So happiness is peace in motion, essentially. Once I'm in a peaceful state and that energy is in motion, it's happiness is born. Happiness is a natural experience. I'd love you to now actually reflect on moments when you've been really happy. On moments when you've been really, really happy. See if you can recollect or recall uh, one to three really big moments where you're very, very happy. Okay. One to three. Ideally more than one if you can. Ideally more than one if you can. So yeah, happiness. It's going to be, um, there's going to be many individual moments that we can reflect on. Um, and what I'd love for you to do now is to actually... As you recall, at least one if you can, um, but up to three big moments of happiness in your life. What is a consistent happening within those three moments? Something that 
is occurring at the level of the mind that is the same in every single one of those three moments. Not in terms of the feeling, right? We already know the feeling of happiness. What's actually happening in the mind? And if you've seen my Instagram post, you probably already know the answer to this. So anyone that's seen that Instagram post, I don't want you to jump in. I want to let anyone else jump in. So what is the same, what's the um, thing that's happening in the mind that's the same every single time you experience a very happy moment? If we look over that, if we sort of review what people have said, right, there's the moment when the baby's being held in their arms, Annalise's arms, right? There's Joe's experience of, yeah, being, again, also an unshock or a disbelief of um, something that's been done by his girlfriend. Um, it's been beautiful for him. There's Amy's experience where, again, surprise, right? That concept of a surprise or awe or gratitude. Yeah. So there's many things. Oh, hello. Annalise is a child. Hello. <laughs> yeah. So th there's many ways that we can define an experience of happiness, right? So we can look at that. And then looking at the underlying thing can be very difficult. But when we really look at, okay, well, what is almost a basis of all of those things? Surprise, contentment, awe, gratitude. What is the basis of those, right? Presence. Complete presence. In those moments, you are completely present with what it is that you're experiencing. Completely. And you're really happy, right? Presence is the basis. Now, at the moment, many of us, um, I say many of us because there's some people that have done very well with this stuff. Right? Um, I'm still working on this a lot, honestly. Right? This is stuff I'm still working on. Um, and I forever will. Um, and I love to acknowledge that. I think it's important to... Um, I've gained a lot of progress myself around this, but at the same time, I'm not not superhuman, <laughs> no way, not very far from it. But I've recognized that uh, it's not about being superhuman, it's about realizing that being human is super. Yeah, it really is. When we actually come to understand how everything works and, um, and um, I say everything, I, I don't actually mean literally everything, of course, that's quite impossible, but we're trying to understand as much as we can, understand the workings of it and then when we understand the workings of it, then we can cultivate more of it. But when we don't understand the workings of it, we just associate the feeling with the external aspects that we've had that experience with. Okay. So that's where we want to start to understand the feeling more and as to what it is, where it's coming from, and what the basis of it is, it is right? And now we understand, okay, it's presence. Well, presence is the basis that's happening in the mind within that moment. Now, at the moment, we associate those experiences with that aspect of presence, right? I need, I need this thing to go my way, right? The thing that I want in order to have that presence. But what about the moments when things don't go my way? When I'm, I don't have that um, experience or that ideal situation happening in the way that I want it, exactly. Presence is very difficult to come by, isn't it? The thought of, this is actually what I want. This isn't what I want. I don't like this feeling. I don't like this thought. I don't like what this person is doing to me. I don't like what that person is saying to me. I want them to be saying something else. I want them to be acting a different way. I want them to be experiencing things differently. I want uh, my business to be going differently. I want more money in my account, right? I want um, I want my dog to be by my side at all times and not run away, right? <laughs> um, all these different things, right? There's so many different things that can interfere with the idea of presence. 
And it's whenever things aren't going the way that I want it to. Now, imagine if you could maintain that level of presence completely at all moments. Because now it won't be moments that stimulate presence. It will be that presence is in every moment. And now all of a sudden the condition for happiness is no longer things going my way. Exactly. Which is very rare, right? I mean, things don't go our way exactly very often. Which is why happiness becomes very scarce. But imagine if we were able to maintain that presence and we were able to experience joy, happiness in the moments rather than the moments stimulating the joy and happiness. Now, every moment becomes a beautiful moment. That's the ideal situation, right? So the journey of creating that and cultivating that, of course, is a very long journey. But as we gain progress on that, isn't that a beautiful thing? All of a sudden, I spend three days instead of two days within the month that I'm actually happy. Amazing. All of a sudden, I spend um, six days instead of seven days in my depression spell. Isn't that amazing? I'm spending more time in happiness. That's progress. That's what we want, right? It's about understanding, again, the mechanism of happiness. That's when we come to understand, okay, what's actually happening in the brain? How is this peace created? How is this presence created? I mean, coming back to presence, right? When I'm very present with something, I'm very peaceful with it. Yeah. And then, like I mentioned, um, when I'm in motion with that, I'm joyful, I'm happy. Now, we, talked, we talk about the science to a happy brain. So, well, what is the brain, firstly? And people just think it's the organ, right, itself. It's a little bit more than that. It's also um, encompassing the spinal cord and the central nervous system, as well as the eyes. So in neuroscience, when we talk about the brain, the entire complex of that is referred to. Okay. Um, now, I'm very early on in my neuroscience time as well. I've only been looking into neuroscience the last two years, started studying it last year. Um, so this is actually, I'm actually quite a beginner with this stuff, honestly. So I'm going to be sharing as much as I can. Um, and it might sound quite advanced even, um, but honestly, um, when I say a beginner, I, I feel like um, when you start to look into science, you're always going to be a beginner. <laughs> There's just so much out there. It's just everlasting knowledge. Um, and it's a beautiful thing about this journey. So when we talk about the brain and uh, we want to understand how it works. So if we were to really summarize how the brain works in a very simplistic manner, works in two ways, two main ways, okay. There's one aspect of the brain that we can refer to maybe as the limbic system, which is like your crocodile brain, your monkey brain, right? This animalistic side of the brain, primitive brain. People have many names for it. But it's essentially the part of the brain that wants to keep you alive. All it cares about is survival. That's all it cares about. It will always do more to move away from pain and it will to move towards pleasure. Now, fortunately, unfortunately for many, including myself for a long time, okay, we've also got this other part of the brain that is very beautiful, but very complex, because it's a lot more than just about moving away from pain and moving towards pleasure. And about that pain is the number one thing I want to stay away from, and everything else will come after it. And it's this aspect of the brain we call the cerebral cortex, 
So within the cerebral cortex, we've got many different areas in the brain. So we've got the neocortex, we've got the frontal lobe, the, um, the prefrontal cortex, just all these different aspects that we can talk about. And what they all have in common is this concept of being able to act consciously, quote unquote. Okay, so we have the ability to plan and to then act on those plans. That's what the cerebral cortex is responsible for. Now, other animals, some animals actually have a portion of our what we call the neocortex, which is, again, like that ability to plan and then act on plans. Dogs actually have, I think it's, I, I don't, can't remember the exact number, but it's something like 11% of what a human does in terms of, of neocortex, not in terms of cerebral, but neo. And what that means is that dogs, yes, can actually plan things and then act on those plans, right? They can genuinely do this. And if um, that's why there's those dog trainers out there, um, Horses have this, right? Um, many other animals have a certain level of a neocortex, but it's nowhere near the size of a human's, nor especially the cerebral cortex, which is the bigger piece of the outer layer of the brain. So we've got this um, part of the brain that wants to plan, expand, grow, right? Move forward, progress, do, do things basically to make more or gain more in my life. And then we've got this part of the brain, the limbic system, that wants to hide away from everything. Everything's dangerous. Everything's scary. I just want to avoid pain as much as I can. So I want to stay away from that. When it comes to happiness, here's why pessimism is much more common than optimism. Optimism feels like a forced thing for many people, right? Being a positive person can feel like a forced thing for many people, right? Well, yeah, actually, there's a reason for that. If you think about the pessimist and the optimist, they're working, walking in the woods back in the day in primitive times. Right. And they hear a rustle in the trees. The pessimist will always think, oh, shit, it's a, tiger. it's a tiger, right? Get away, move. The optimist will say, oh, it's a rabbit. But what if that nine out of 10 times it's a rabbit and the one out of 10 times it's a tiger? The optimist lives. Oh, sorry, the optimist dies, the pessimist lives, right? You see? So we're designed to be more of a pessimist, actually, in terms of our limbic system, because that keeps us safe. The optimist doesn't live as long back then but now our survival is taken care of more much much more than any other generation before us any other generation our survival is so much more taken care of right we have way more comforts and conveniences than any other generation yet why are we not happier in fact statistics would show that we're even sadder right even more anxious why because now we're in a situation where this limbic system, quote-unquote limbic system, is in constant action, putting the stimulus of pain on everything. Our boss, our relationship, right? Our children, um, the things around us, our situations. It needs to act. It wants, us keep, it wants to keep us safe. But there's nothing to really keep us, quote-unquote, safe from. I mean, who has actually been stabbed? Who, is, who has actually been... Um, you know, in a situation where they've been nearly killed, right? I mean, some of us might have, but if we have, then it's probably, you know, a few times in our life. I hope that's not the case, but, you know, there's some people that have been in those situations. So now, then, it's definitely something that our limbic system will need to act on. That fight or flight response or fight, freeze and flight response that will occur to keep us safe. However, when we don't have those specific experiences that limbic system needs to attach to something 
sort of find those little aspects within our life, within our lives, to try to keep us safe from those things. So understanding this can be very important because there's a big chunk of our brain that is going to be constantly active, constantly wanting to find things to keep us safe from. So here's what happens when people experience trauma, when people experience uh, PTSD even, all right, when people experience anxiety and depression. Here's actually what is happening at the deeper level. Let's talk about that because I think it's important that we understand this a little bit more. Now, trauma, all right, this big, big word that's out there that's talked about a lot. Trauma is a situation within the brain. It's created through a pretty straightforward linear structure all right trauma is essentially a group of neurons that get stimulated that ref, um, that reflect a previous experience within a current situation okay so for example if i have a relationship trauma and i'm in a relationship it's going to be very common for that specific trauma to come to the surface quite a lot right if i have a trauma uh, uh, trauma from war okay anything that resembles loud noises or um, fast movement or anything like that is going to it's going to stimulate that trauma right so essentially what trauma is and how it's created is when a very shocking experience happens within our life that is kind of threatening whatever it is even if it's just slightly threatening if as long as we perceive it as threatening so it doesn't even need to be actually threatening it doesn't actually need to even be a gun held to our head or nearly stabbed by a knife it can literally be someone said something mean to us yeah that can be trauma it can literally be uh, uh someone looked at us the wrong way <laughs> it can be anything but if our association to that experience is that of um very painful what our brain will do in that moment is become very present with that pain and it will take in as much information within that moment as possible so that if any situation in the future resembles that of that trauma, I know to fight, freeze or flight because again, my brain wants to survive. It's more focused on survival than it is focused on happiness. So what it will do is it will create these or stimulate these groups of neurons in my brain that are associated with those experiences. So for example, if it's a uh, trauma within a relationship, it might be any time someone walks into the room really quickly, okay? Any time I smell the particular um, incense that was burning at the time when the trauma happened. Um, if that specific smell comes into the surface, I don't even, I can literally have the smell of like an incense burning right now. And if that smell is the same, as the experience when I had that trauma, I'm going to stimulate anxiety within myself and I'm not even going to know why. Or some, or randomly I'm going to start having all these traumatic memories come to the surface and I'm not even going to know why. Like why am I thinking of these all of a sudden? Because probably at some stage over that course of the day or during um, the recent moments, an, uh, an experience resembling something, whether it was a sound, a smell, or something you touched even, right? That resembled something of a previous trauma that's been created. So that's how trauma acts. That's how it responds. Why? Because the brain wants to keep you safe. So it all of a sudden makes you react and it makes you want to shrink away and hide away. Why? Because that's how we stay safe. If we hide away, if we keep away from the world, there's no actual possibility for physical danger. Unfortunately, 
right? The brain, the brain doesn't know that actually the sadness can lead to, you know, more problems, which actually ends up um, creating this, uh, you know, unfortunately suicidal situations for many people. Um, the brain doesn't know it's, it's not wanting that to happen. It's trying to keep us safe. It thinks the best way to keep us safe is to make us act in this way where we hide away from the world, where we get very anxious and try to move away from everything, right? That's how it knows to keep us safe. So now that we know what's actually happening, okay, now how does that get created? Well, in a traumatic situation, a specific region in the brain called the amygdala activates, okay? If you've done psychology or anything like that, you might have heard of this part of the brain. The amygdala is this tiny little almond-shaped, this literally an almond-shaped piece of the brain near the brainstem. The brainstem sort of runs down into the spinal cord to the nervous system. And um, this little piece of the brain gets very active, very, very, uh, very hot, if you will, uh, during this moment. Now, the amygdala, which... Um, fires up the hypothalamus, okay, which basically stimulates a nervous system, becomes very stimulated. So that's why our entire nervous system becomes very tense. It stimulates this, what we call the fight or flight response, or in other words, what some people know in psychology as the sympathetic nervous system, okay? Sympathetic, ner sympathetic nervous system is our fight or flight response within our system. So it's what produces a whole lot of um, adrenaline, um, epinephrine, uh, cortisol, right? All these different chemicals in our body to now epinephrine is adrenaline for those that don't know um and within our body so that we can react in the best way that we know how which is going to be purely based on past situations because the past situations obviously keep us safe because here we are we're alive so the brain will act in ways that it knows to keep you safe and that's either fight freeze or flight right so that's how trauma is actually created now, when trauma actually comes up, right, this is what's happening in the brain. So when a response within um, or experience within society happens and that trauma is, um, has come to the surface or a situation resembles that trauma, again, those specific groups of neurons that resemble that in any way, okay, whether it's something I've seen that resembles it, whether it's yeah, something I smelled, um, heard, tasted, touched, anything within my five sensory organs that resembles it. I'm going to trigger those exact same groups of neurons. And those groups of neurons are going to trigger the amygdala again. That amygdala is going to trigger the, trigger the hypothalamus. Okay, that hypothalamus is going to trigger the central nervous system and I'm going to become really tense again. Okay, whole nervous system is going to fire up. And I'm going to react in the same way that I've done in the past. That's what we call compulsion. Going in cycles, circles, right? Going round and round and round. So it's like we're finally making progress and then something triggers it and then we go back round and round and round back to where we were, square one, right? So that's what a compulsive reaction is. And that's unfortunately what all, a lot of us are stuck into because we haven't been able to figure out how to help make the cerebral cortex work for us rather than against us. Because right now the cerebral cortex is in a state of judgment, right? Because the limbic system, the reactive state, doesn't judge. It just knows one thing. It wants us to keep us safe. The cerebral cortex, I will judge things. Because by judging, I can figure things out, make plans and you know make progress. That's what the cerebral cortex is for. But the cerebral cortex, right, this part of the brain, this really key piece in the brain that's responsible for planning, it's going to judge what's going on. We call that self-sabotage, right? So critical, we critique ourselves. We see what's going on and we judge ourselves. So our cerebral cortex at the moment is working against us. This creates more stress. Many people say they get more anxious about their anxiety. I've heard this many times. 
Many people say they get more depressed about the depression. I've heard this many times, right? So an experience that's already going on is amplified tenfold, hundredfold, even thousandfold in people. But when are we able to peel back the layers? And I've had the opportunity, the blessing of doing this um, through a lot of meditation. Um, yeah, you'll actually start to see how actually small a lot of this pain can actually be. Going from a mentality of not wanting to be over, wanting to disappear to actually gen genuinely thriving. Um, yes, I go through ups and downs, but hey, I'm a human being. Yet, at the same time, this idea of anxiety, this idea of depression is something that hasn't been in my life for two years now. At one point, it was something that I was always in and I didn't even know how to feel happy. I didn't even know how to feel grateful. I had a gratitude for journal for two years. I couldn't even feel grateful after spending every single day for two years writing a gratitude journal. I didn't know what gratitude was. I thought that if I just wrote this, I'll feel happy. Didn't. Yeah. But once we get the cerebral cortex working for us, on the other hand, that's when we can actually expand. Okay, That's when the judgment will stop because we're directing the intention elsewhere. That's not by forcing it. That's only by solving what's going on at the deeper level. Okay, So that's where we come to the concept of how happiness is created. Okay, Because happiness can't be created if we force it to, if we try to actually cultivate it physically. And here's why. If, say, you're in a happy moment, think about every happy moment that you've had. Why is it that you haven't been able to sustain it? Because something else has come up and triggered another experience, right? Something else has occurred within your life that's brought you back down, or you've recalled a memory that's again brought you back down and taking you out of that happiness experience. So it's actually something that we want to um, address, right? So something that's going on within our lives that's taking away, us away from the experience. Why? Because again, the brain wants to keep us safe. I'm going to say this as many times as I need to. brain wants to keep us safe. It's actually trying to serve us. But unfortunately, again, it's taking us away from our happiness. So what actually needs to be done is we actually need to solve what's going on at the deeper level in order to find that happiness. Because if we solve what's going on the deeper level, then we actually start to have less and less and less things within our lives that take us away from happiness. And then something beautiful happens. We start to feel more peaceful. We start to feel more calm. And we start to feel more present. What does that create? Happiness, right? Now we can be more happy within our situations rather than our situations needing to dictate our happiness. You see? So solving things, great. Okay, now we, now we know what to do. We need to solve things, great. How do we do it, right? How do we solve trauma? Well, that's, a, that's, a, that's a big question. That's a million dollar question, right? I, I have one way. I have one way. This, this specific way that I use, okay? Specific way, I have one way. There are millions of ways, okay, you guys? There are millions of ways. Now, I've heard of all sorts of ways, you know, neurolinguistic programming, okay, NLP, cognitive behavior therapy, okay, CBT, okay, um, childhood, um, uh, there's many childhood trauma uh, focuses, okay, working on your childhood. Uh, there's uh, so many different therapies out there, eye movement desensitization therapy, which I will speak about, um, progressive muscle relaxation therapy. Um, there's specific um, sound therapies out there. Okay, there's so many different ways, right? so many different ways. So I'm going to keep things as simple as I can by simply speaking about the way that I utilize with people that I work with. Okay, It's very straightforward. It's about going about the different layers of the mind. 
well, how do we go about the different layers of the mind? What is the mind? Well, the mind, if we refer to it in English, would be, well, it's the brain, right? It's my in, in, intellect, right? It's my, the th all the thoughts that I have, right? But really, the mind's a lot more than that. Right? As we start to understand the brain more, we do start to understand that there's many other aspects to this concept of mind than just our thoughts. Why are thoughts triggered? Why are certain thoughts coming to the surface more than others? Why is it that I get stuck on a specific thought and can't think about anything else when a situation happens, right? So let's talk about the mind for a second and talk about the layers of the mind. In Eastern tradition, right, they talk about these 16 parts of the mind. So there's all these different, many different aspects of the mind. And then the intellect, which is our thought process, is just one. Just one. So there's all these other aspects of the mind that they have come to understand. Now, through... Um, having this opportunity to do um, to work with the Buddhist monk from Burma, and then also to have the opportunity of um, studying under um, a, another monk's um, teachings, which um, was in my Vipassana course that I did, which is a 10-day meditation course. Yeah, it was about 110 to 120 hours of meditation over 10 days. It was pretty crazy. Um, and during this process, I started to understand a little bit more about what they refer to as the mind, and I started to connect it to my studies within neuroscience. So it made more sense, and I'll speak about this. So essentially, the mind, the more we understand this, the, you know, the more capability we have of solving different aspects of what's going on within us. The mind has many layers. The first layer is that of which we might walk into, say, um, you know, we might walk outside and go see our garden. Okay, might go and have a look at our garden, and we see a bunch of pretty flowers and plants and um all these different, um, like maybe trees or whatever we've got in our garden. And then we see a bunch of weeds. Many people will look at that surface layer of the mind and they will see the weeds and then constantly tell themselves, there are no weeds. There are no weeds. No, there's no weeds. I don't see any weeds. No, nothing. What is that action? Affirmation, right? Affirmation. This isn't, um, I, I'm happy, right? I'm joyful. I love myself, right? These are very common things that people practice, which is great. It's great, right? For a moment, it makes us feel good because I'm like, oh, there are no weeds. I feel good. Great. There's no weeds, right? There's no problem. A beautiful um, guru by the name of Sadhguru, um, one of my favorite um, um, teachers of Eastern wisdom, he says, um, positive thinking is like looking at only one side of life. The problem is the other side of life will not ignore, uh, sorry, will uh, yeah, not ignore us. So even if we want to avoid one side of life and ignore one side of life, that life, that side of life, that negative side of life would not ignore us. The weeds will constantly grow. The things happening in the background in terms of trauma will constantly be there until we address it. And I'm sure all of us are very aware of this. Right? I'm sure all of us have been through situations, including myself, where I've suppressed things, I've pushed things down, I've pushed things away. Like, nah, like as long as I avoid it, I'll be fine. And then I go about my day and I go about my week and I go about my month and my year and I'm actually fine for a while. I'm like, sweet, see, I've got this. And then what happens a month later, a year later, sometimes an hour later for some people, sometimes years later for some people, you know, 30, 40 years down the track, something happens. A situation 
that is associated with an, a, a certain experience that I had within a past moment gets triggered again. Those old neurons come to the surface. That triggers the amygdala, hypothalamus, nervous system, stress, overwhelm, sadness, depression, anxiety. Okay, stored deep down within us. So when we avoid things, not only are they going to come back and bite us in the ass, they get bigger. They get so much bigger and they seep into many areas of our life. And we start reacting to things without realizing why we're reacting to them. Why? Because our fuse is getting shorter because we're constantly not looking at the thing and it's pushing us back, pushing us back. All of a sudden we've got no more room, no more room. As you can see, I've got no more room on the screen, <laughs> no more room. And then all of a sudden something like the smallest thing happens, tips us over the edge and we're like, why am I, why am I so angry? Why am I so frustrated? Why am I so, it's because that thing's been pushing you into the corner been pushing into the corner you just haven't been looking at it that weed's been freaking growing it's been growing and growing and growing and now all of a sudden it's a freaking forest all right all you got are weeds nothing else nothing else is a life you see so affirmation although it's got its time and place and i love affirmation in its time and place can be very problematic okay so that's working at the surface layer of the mind surface layer of the mind so we go a layer deeper all right we look into Concepts of neurolinguistic programming, cognitive behavior therapy, which is basically the concept of creating new thought patterns and deleting old ones. Now, let me tell you this. That's absolute baloney. We can't do that, right? After 25 years old, you're not actually creating new thought patterns and you're not deleting old ones, right? All you're doing is actually you're shifting and changing the thought patterns you're using after about 25, okay? Um, now, that's not a bad thing, okay? Just because you're about 25 years old, what do I do? Okay, it doesn't mean that you can't heal what's going on. Not at all. It's, it doesn't mean that at all. All that, all that it means is that it just takes a little bit more of intense work than it would if you're below 25, that's all. And it does mean that you're not creating new thought patterns. All it means is you're shifting and changing. In fact, we have something like 100 billion neurons in our brain. 100 billion. So if you think about 100 billion, which is just an insanely limitless number, Right? there's a lot of potential thought patterns that we can move to compared to the current one that we have okay so yeah so it's, it's pretty intense to um, think about all the different possibilities right so just because you're above 25 if you are it's not impossible it's 100 percent possible but it just means that your brain is what we call less plastic which brings us to the idea of neuroplasticity or neural plasticity which is actually what it's called um, but neuroplasticity same thing Okay. Neural plasticity is essentially one's ability to change or experience something different within the level of the brain. Okay, that's neuroplasticity. So neuroplasticity is very, very um, uh, fantastic opportunity when we're below the ages of six and seven years old. Okay, below those ages, it's very plastic, right? We want to learn how to speak, how to walk, um, how to converse, how to go about certain um, life um, add things, life within, uh, admin within life that we need to go about that our parents are telling us to do, right? And we're told to do certain things. We're told not to do certain things. So we're learning, we're learning, we're learning. Great, right? That's, that's handy for life, for actually surviving in life, but it's not particularly handy for, you know, creating happiness because we're taught how to survive. We're not taught how to actually be happy. We're told to sit down and shut up when we cry. We're not told, we're told to not express our emotions, right? All these different things that actually cause more problems, right? So, that's what's happening up to about six or seven years old. And then up until about 14 or 15 when puberty occurs, we're still actually going through the same process 
Now, there's this interesting concept out there saying that, you know, first six or seven years of life are um, our most important time for, um, yeah, for learning and for, um, yeah, not learning certain traumatic experiences. It's actually, it's much larger than that. It actually goes on longer than six or seven years. The process actually continues till about 14 or 15 years old um, until about puberty. Okay, so we're still actually creating new neurons and deleting old neurons that we don't want. So we're still going through that process till about 14 or 15. So anything within those first 15 years of our life are going to be affect us the most, okay, the most. And then once we reach um, about age 25, okay, now because um, after about age 14 or 15, we're not we're now not creating new thought um, neurons. Sorry, we're not creating new neurons. We're creating new thought patterns because we're stimulating other neurons and all this different stuff that's going on. But now up until 25, we're constantly now deleting neurons okay that don't serve us so if you're below the age of 25 great you've got this fantastic opportunity you dive in and you're, you're much more plastic okay quote-unquote plastic or got more opportunity to change than someone that is above 25 but that does not mean that after 25 you cannot and it's usually about a year or two sort of give or take from 25 but yeah it does mean that you can't it absolutely means you can it just means that it's not as easy as it was when you were below 25 that is all so understand that it is possible. It just means that when you come into a place um, in order to create plasticity or you're wanting to change, create this concept of change in the brain where we're now using different thought patterns in, compared to the ones that we don't want to use, just means that it requires more focus. Okay, So we prime our brain to create focus on the thing that we want to create and we can create it and I'll talk about that a little bit later if we get time, but if not, it's okay. Um, I'm trying to congest as much as I can here. We'll go for about another 20 or so minutes. And um, so that's that layer of the mind of, you know, inserting new thought patterns. In other words, just changing our thought patterns. But yeah, for terms of NLP and CBT, we'll just say that. And um, this is fantastic, honestly. This is fantastic because now we're being taught how to uh, stimulate these, um, you know, new pathways. Okay. Um, and, we're and we're not, well, quote unquote, creating, but we're accessing new roads. Okay. That now become highways. So new roads that are, you know, the side road that was there before and we're taking this highway of fear and reaction and, um, you know, depression and anxiety. And all we're doing was we're now getting off the highway and going onto the little road, right? And after some time, that little road becomes more and more popular and eventually it becomes a highway as well, okay? And that highway slowly over time just becomes a little road. It doesn't necessarily get deleted, like I said, okay? It just begins what happens is that thought pattern that, neurons itself or the groups of neurons themselves and me becoming less and less dominant so they're becoming less and less and less active okay so that's what's happening over time now what's going to happen at this level of the mind is um, we're now starting to understand that yeah okay there are roots oh, sorry there are weeds sorry and i can do something about those weeds so i'm going to so i get out my weed hacker and start hacking down all the weeds right I start cutting down all those weeds and clearing my garden so my plants can grow. Great. But what happens after some time? The weeds grow back. The roots are still there. And so they continue to come back and we get out the weed hacker again and continue to maintain the garden. That's, that's great. We're keeping it down, but it doesn't stop it from keep continually coming back. And after a while we get, man, this is so much effort. Oh man, I don't know if I can be bothered with that anymore. So what happens? They just grow back again. Right. And this can be the problem when we're looking, working at that layer of the mind, because although we're making progress initially, we don't stop them from growing back. 
We don't stop them from being triggered later because what's happening when we're just accessing thought patterns themselves and rather than working at the deeper layer of the mind, which I'll speak about in a moment, right? The actual deeper root of it hasn't been solved, which means that root can be still stimulated in a later event that represents that past situation I experienced, right? When I was very, very little that I, that I might not even be able to recall. Um, this is where, um, you know, working through childhood traumas can be quite limiting because we can't recall all of them. Okay, um, and we're going through this um, constant process of uh, um, trying to solve each individual situation uh, that we're coming across, and that's not that's pre that's not preventing new uh, weeds from growing, new thought problematic thought patterns from growing. All that it's doing is it's for a moment giving us some form of peace. Okay, now again, that's not a bad thing. That's actually an important step. It is, but just know there's so much more that we can go to. Okay, so much more depth that we can go to in the next layer of the mind is understanding, okay, well, the weeds actually have roots. What if, and I say, what if I actually pulled the root out? What would that require in the mind? What would that require? Well, if we imagine the root of a weed as a sensation that happens within our unconscious mind, as we would refer to it in psychology, okay, in psychology we would say unconscious mind, subconscious mind, and conscious mind, okay, subconscious mind meaning like all the thought patterns that are going on, the conscious mind, meaning the thing that I'm consciously choosing to do, planning to do. Okay, and the unconscious mind, the thing that I don't specifically become aware of very easily, I think it happens at the deeper layer of the, of the mind, we call the unconscious mind. And that's the sensational experience that we have when something is triggered. So even right now, without you even realizing, it takes a lot of work to even notice a lot of this at the more subtle level, you've got various sensations occurring in your body right now. You might have like a little bit of tension right here. You might have um, a little tingling sensation right here. You might have an itch on your ear, okay? How many people just got an itch on the ear, right? <laughs> you might have all these different uh, things happening constantly on the body, on the level of the body, on the surface level of the body, on the inside of the body, constantly without even realizing, right? And that's where beautiful process we call meditation comes into play right we can start to tune into those things but what's actually happening is our mind our brain is reacting to these sensations because here's what's actually happening when we start to experience something within us right. and it's this an experience happens okay say an experience happens around us now say that experience was hmm. okay my incense, okay, my incense is no longer burning, so it's not a good example, but let's just say it was, right? Now I've got some lavender incense burning, right? I might not even notice a smell when I'm paying attention to you at all, right? It's not, uh, unless I'm actually starting to, oh, really smell it, then I'll actually notice it. So what is that? That's perception, okay? So there's an experience, which is something that's outside of me. The perception is paying attention to the thing that's, out, that's actually coming in contact with my, uh, sensory organs, okay, so there's percep per, um, perception, then once I've perceived the smell, okay, I also experience a sensation of the smell. So as an example, if I just tell you right now to pay attention to the sensations on the sole of your foot, on the sole of your foot, those sensations were always there, they were already happening, but right now you've just noticed the sensations on the sole of your foot, So what's happening, the sensations are constantly always going, always, always going. But now you've perceived the sensations. So you've focused, um, neurologically putting your attention towards the soles of your feet. So now you're noticing the sensations. So we perceive something. I perceive the smell. Right. So there's experience. There's perception. Then there's 
sensation. So the sensation of the smell is occurring. Okay. Now the sensation triggers a thought. Okay. That thought is happening at the unconscious level. This is all happening unconsciously, guys. That lavender incense is now triggering a the neurons of lavender smell. Okay. Yes, we actually get we develop these neurons. Okay, for various different things. Right. Now. Um, and by the way, just side note, after 25 years, you can still create new neurons, sorry, um, but very minimally, very, very small, very small amounts and very minimally, uh, very sparse. Um, so it's actually, yeah, like I said, um, it's still possible, 100%, just requires more focus. Um, but yeah, I'm triggering these lavender neurons or incense neurons or whatever, right? Now, based on that, th that thought of that smell, like that smell is good, whatever my association with that lavender incense is, or that smell is bad, or... Um, that smell is yuck, right? Whatever that is, that produces what we call a feeling. So all of this has happened. And within a split second, within a split second, we've produced a feeling that's based on my association with my experience. That's what's happening, okay? These, depending on what these lavender incense neurons, okay, are paired with, depending on what groups, what that group of neurons um, also trigger within the brain in terms of other neurons, it's going to be based on, it's going to produce a certain chemical reaction with my body based on that. Right. So that chemical reaction, if that chemical reaction is, oh, that's yuck, I'm going to get like this yuck feeling like, of disgust, right? If it's like, oh, that's good, I might get this like calm feeling. So these calm neurons get, um, get stimulated, right? And I feel good, right? So that's my experience. So that's my feeling based on everything that's happened. Now, based on that feeling, I can then also produce more thoughts, based on that feeling. If you think about a time when you're very, very happy, what generally happens? You start thinking about different things more positively, right? And then when you're very, very sad, what happens? You start thinking about things in a more pessimistic way, right? Why? Because that's your state. That's your experience of what's going on. So it's going to stimulate thoughts in a different way. So all of this is literally happening every single moment of your day. Every single moment. Isn't that overwhelming? <laughs> That doesn't necessarily mean it's a bad thing. Actually, it's quite a good thing. And what's the best thing about um, everything that we've ju I've just talked about is that no single moment is actually going to change your brain constantly, and you're not your brain's not constantly in change. Okay, this isn't, this isn't truth, right? Uh, except unless you're in the first few years of your life. Okay, up until about 15 years old, yeah, your brain is probably changing quite a lot. But after about 15 years old, your brain's not changing that much constantly. Okay, it takes a lot of focus on something, or it takes a big like big experience to happen for something actual change to happen, right? So um, let's just put that aside for a moment and yeah, come back to experience. So within all of this, okay, um, the lavender incense is going, all right, that's the experience. I've perceived it because I've, I've noticed the smell. I've had the sensation of the smell. I've had triggered um, specific neurons in my brain, the thoughts, okay? That's triggered a feeling. And then that feeling produces more thoughts, okay? Now I go about my day based on, from that state, I'm producing new thoughts. So that's essentially what's happening. And when we go to the deeper layer of our mind, what is the uh, area that I can interfere with that's before the thought? Sensation. So there's the experience, there's a the perception, then there's the sensation. So it's the sensation that, um, that my thoughts react to. So if I can understand what, it's, that what it is that I react to, I can, start to, get to the, um, I can start to get to the deeper layer of what's going on in the mind. And that's where a beautiful process we call meditation comes into play. Because meditation, right, is uh, the, basically the journey of going inward. It's a journey of go, tuning into what's going on within ourselves, right? It's interoception, not extraception. Extraception is that of outside of us. 
So as we get to the deepest layer of our mind, I'm going to give you a very dry joke because I think everyone's getting a little bit, a little bit agitated or sleepy. So this is a great Keza joke I've got for you. And some of you have heard of it. It's, it's my favorite, favorite dry joke ever. Why did the Buddhist monk, or what did the Buddhist monk say when he didn't know the answer to a question? Um... I told you it was pretty dry. <laughs> that's, that's the best Buddhist joke we got. Um, oh, another one, another goodie. Here we go. All right. Why couldn't the Buddhist monk uh, vacuum underneath the, the couch? Okay. Why couldn't the Buddhist monk vacuum under the under the couch? Because he lost all his attachments. <laughs> Get it? All his vacuum attachments. Uh, anyway, uh, enough dry jokes for a moment. Anyway. Um, so we get into the deeper layer of the mind, okay? Um, we're getting to the sensation level of the mind. All right, now, once we come to a place where that sensation itself is no longer stimulating what we call the amygdala, the fear region of the brain, now we start to attain what we call peace or calm. or what, well, We stop stimulating this reaction experience, right? So now we're getting to a point where uh, if we can actually understand that if it's the sensation that I want to be create peace with, not just the thought, it's actually the sensation itself that's occurring, that's leading to the thought. Now it's something that we start to uh, we can start to make progress with. Because that's when we get to the deep layer of the mind. The only problem is, is many people have these overwhelming thoughts. They can't sit with an experience. They can't sit with the sensation because all these thoughts are happening at the surface of the mind. Okay, and that's where you know NLP and CBT are fantastic because it helps us work through a lot of that stuff. And then we can get to the deeper layer of the mind. So, as I said, now we're starting to pull out the roots of the mind. Okay, so if you can reach a point where you experience a sensation in the body, no matter what it is, whether it's a certain feeling or an emotion or a sensation in the body where you really need an itch and you don't have a reaction to that sensation, that means you're now in a place where you're more equanimous, or in other words, neutral with that. When you're more equanimous and neutral with every experience in your life, you're able to be more present. Because now nothing is taking you away from presence. Now we start to actually change the environment of the mind. So we're actually changing the soil that the weeds were growing in so that now weeds can't even freaking grow in the garden. Isn't that great? Because now once we're in a calmer state, when we're in a more equanimous state, we are now in a state where when a situation happens that should be problematic, we stay calm through it. When we stay calm through it, we now no longer perceive the situation as a problematic situation. If we don't perceive it as a problematic situation, instead it's something that we can solve, so we'll figure it out. That's fine because I'll be okay. I deep down have this deep knowing that I'm going to be okay. Fantastic. That means now we're no longer uh, going to create these new patterns that create issues in our lives. So that's about creating a change within the environment of the mind. We're changing the soil of the garden so new weeds don't grow. Okay. Now, now that we understand sort of like the layers of the mind, I think it's important to touch on what are some of the first things that we can start to do in order to actually gain momentum, gain progression around generating this thing we call peace so that we can generate this thing we call sustainable happiness, unconditional happiness, not conditional happiness. Okay, because conditional happiness, if you want that, you go somewhere else. Okay, it's not here. It's not what we're here for. 
I'm here to help you to understand this concept of unconditional happiness, which is no shortcut, which is, um, which, so there's no shortcuts, okay? There's no uh, biohacking. I don't like that word because biohacking is just turning into um, things that we already have within our brain, okay? We already have them, right? Biohacking isn't, you know, doing like hacking a computer or anything. We're not hacking the brain, right? We're just turning into things that are already there. So moving that, okay? Getting that out the window. We're not, we're not talking about that here. We're talking about actually how to begin our journey for happiness. Now, I'm pretty well aware that I'm wanting to conclude this within the next 10 minutes, which I, I'm very confident I can. So we're going to start bringing it home. Okay, so how is it now that we understand actually what's happening within the mind, within the brain, how is it that we can start to generate more peace and then happiness? Let's talk about some simple tools that you can apply so you can start to begin your journey to finding more calm and peace during your day right. so this is one of my favorite favorite um tools that i like to give um, my clients literally one of the first tools i give them and i talk about it a lot on my social media as well and it's just a very simple tool to find baseline within your system okay baseline meaning your sympathetic nervous system your fight or flight system is no longer as active as often and this is what we do we do this thing called a double inhale and a longer exhale, okay? So a double inhale and a longer exhale. And a double inhale doesn't need to be through the nose specifically, although ideally through the nose, through the mouth, it's fine. So it's like. And that's it. And if you do that for about six rounds, you'll start to notice a feeling of almost lightheadedness, a little bit more calm, a little bit more peace in that moment. It's very simple. It's almost too simple. Like, Karen, something like that can't exist. Well, yeah, it does. You actually have used this technique many times in your life. You've used it when you've been crying. Right? You've used it when you've been yawning. You see? You've used it many times. Some people use it when they're running. You see? You use it a lot. But what if you could consciously use it? You bring yourself back to baseline. What's actually happening on the second inhale, when you inhale the second time through the nose or through the mouth, these sacs in your lungs actually open up more and it brings carbon dioxide from the bloodstream into those sacs in the lungs. And then when you exhale, especially when it's longer, because during your exhale, the... Um, you know, the diaphragm moves uh, up, okay? When the diaphragm moves up, it shrinks the space that the heart's in a little more, sends a signal to the brain to tell the heart beat to slow down, okay? That's actually what's happening when we exhale longer than we inhale. We're actually starting to slow down the heart rate a little more. So when you exhale longer than the inhale, that we get that response within the heart, okay? It slows down a little bit. And also with the after the double inhale, we're also dumping more carbon dioxide out than we're actually building up okay which means that what's happening is uh, this equilibrium starting to be created of oxygen to carbon dioxide so when you actually yawn what's actually happening is the body's actually trying to get rid of carbon dioxide it's actually trying to get more oxygen um, yeah it can be produced through an enhanced amount of what we call adenosine okay which is a sleep hunger so when you're sleepy right you also start to trigger this but um, essentially when we start to create a more stable stabi uh, greater stability of oxygen and carbon dioxide within the system right our body is more calm 
The reason why the body's more calm is because when you start to re uh, reduce this ratio, okay, or shift this ratio, we stimulate this nerve called the phrenic nerve, okay? Um, the phrenic nerve acts very quickly and it stimulates a calm response within the brain, which stimulates our parasympathetic nervous system. Parasympathetic nervous system, so don't worry too much about the names, but it's our rest and digest system, aka the system that is not our fight or flight system, okay? Um, so, when we stimulate this, uh, ideally we want to stimulate this more quickly. So the phrenic nerve is a great nerve to utilize, different to the vagus nerve. That's very popular in psychology. The vagus nerve acts very slowly over an hour or two. It doesn't happen very quickly. Um, you, you get it through food or you get it through um, uh, many different uh, many different things that um, there are various ways to stimulate the vagus nerve, essentially. Um, you can look that up yourself. But essentially, it's a very slow-acting nerve. Um, the one we want to stimulate for quicker calmness is what's called the phrenic nerve, okay? Because it's more calmness. So when you stimulate this phrenic nerve, what happens is now we are what we call the amygdala within the brain, the little almond, almond guy sitting at the back of the brain, no longer gets as loud. So what's happening now is we're now stimulating the hypothalamus less, we're stimulating the central nervous system less, so we feel more calm, okay? So you can use this at any time, whether you're in a crazy situation, okay, and you're feeling very stressed, you just go. Sometimes when um, I'm in a conversation with people, I actually do this a lot without even thinking now because it's such a, um, yeah, it's just such a subconscious habit now, but I will literally um, be like this when they're talking. I'll just be nodding my head, <laughs> like listening intently, but I'll be doing the breath just through my nose, and I don't even need to know I'm doing it. Right? It's the beauty of this breath. You can use it at any point, right? And you just bring a little more calmness into your system. And what you'll find is that you'll you'll uh, weaken those groups of neurons that are that are programmed to react in a problematic way, more so. Therefore, you uh, will feel less overwhelmed over time if you use this technique. Now, just remember, this is a tool or a technique to work at the surface level of the mind. This isn't going to solve anything. It's just going to help you find a little more calmness during a day so that you can then go and action something that helps. A second, and I'm realizing I'm going to go a little over time. By the way, just apologies. I might go about five, 10 minutes over because I actually really want to get through these tools. Um, the second is called um, EMDR. I mentioned it earlier. EMDR is eye movement desensitization reprocessing. Eye movement desensitization reprocessing is essentially uh, the lateral movement of the eye. It's like this, okay? So you move your eye from one side to the other, one side to the other. It's that simple, okay? Now, what they found in studies is that when people recalled specific events, so you can't, you can't recall just a relationship or just your parents, excuse me, or just, um, you know, that like collective thing. You need to recall specific experiences. But when you do and you move the eyes from left to right, you're actually stimulating, or sorry, reducing stimulation to the amygdala, again, the almond-shaped piece of the brain that will stimulate fear. So one of the fear regions of the brain. Okay, um, So, I mean, we're reducing amount of reactiveness within the situation, okay? So that when we come across the situation again, because we've already processed a little more of it, feel more calm. Okay, so eye movement desensitization therapy um, or reprocessing therapy. So you can also, to make this more effective, if you go for a walk, say you go for a little walk every morning, um, I usually get outside every morning, I would like to, I like to get as much eye, light into my eyes as I can, that's a whole other thing, go and look at my um, most recent podcast before, episode before this one that I'm going to bring out, you'll hear a little bit more, bit more about the importance of all this stuff, and so much more to it, and uh, yeah, basically when you're creating forward movement, 
when things are passing you by, you also stimulate what we call dopamine. Now, dopamine is the chemical or the neurotransmitter of reward and motivation. Okay, not just reward, but motivation as well. So when I'm making forward progress physically, I'm also and seeing things go by, my brain thinks I'm making progress. So therefore, I feel like I'm gaining momentum, which is why when we go for a long walk, right, um, and we come back, we feel a little bit lighter because we're triggering that dopamine and because likely, right, we're accidentally, without even realizing, we're using EMDR. Interesting, isn't it? We're focusing, recalling on something, right, when we're walking and we're actually looking like at the things from to our left and the things to our right, we start actually utilizing that same reprocessing um, therapy right, of EMDR. It's pretty pretty cool. Right? It helps us to process it. It doesn't necessarily mean, again, it doesn't solve it. Remember this. These tools are just great things to start you on the uh, work to finding more peace. Okay. The final and simplistic um, tool I want to give is something called future journaling. It's something I like to, again, um, give my clients within their first month or two of work. And future journaling is a very simple process. And it's a process to uh, stimulate, again, shifts within the patterns that we utilize within a specific situation that previously would have used um, patterns that are unideal. Okay. So say if I want to recall, um, say an experience where my, and I've had this before, okay, I used to be a very jealous guy, honestly, I really did. Um, say I used to, um, I was in an experience where my girlfriend at the time um, is talking to a guy. Now, I used to live in Quebec, okay, in Quebec City specifically, where literally it's about 70 to 80% French speaking, and uh, je ne sais pas, meaning I do not know, okay, <laughs> je parle français uh, terrible, which means I my, my French is terrible, right, <laughs> it really is, and um, uh, yeah, here I was in a French speaking place where everyone was speaking a language that I did not know, and here, here when my... Um, the girlfriend at the time was speaking to other guys. I'd just see she is more interested in him. I would just see that because I'd see her facial expression and it would just trigger these jealousy neurons in my brain. Um, and there I would be just feeling so jealous and so overwhelmed and so anxious. Man, I just recall, I can recall that and how, how much I suffered. But essentially, um, I started using future journaling back then. This is where, this is why I recall it when I think about the actual future journaling task. And future journaling isn't your traditional journaling method. Right? It's um, essentially not about dear diary. And it's not just recalling an experience. It's actually creating an idea of how I want to be in an experience. So what I started to do on this in this future journaling process was, um, as I'd sort of journal, I did this every morning for about three to five minutes. And I'd write things like, in moments when I'd normally feel jealous, I am learning to feel peaceful. In moments where I'd normally get jealous of um, my girlfriend, I won't say her name for confidentiality, um, speaking to a guy, I'll find trust. I'll feel trusting, right? So these are, um, these are, <laughs> these are experiences uh, that I genuinely started to eventually start to embody, right? In a very subtle way. It, didn't, it took a while to actually really um, gain progress because I struggled to actually feel it because I wasn't really doing it very well. I was sort of doing it in ways where I couldn't really experience what I was writing. So what's important is that when you're writing it, you're writing it in a way that is more believable for you. This is what's important. So it's not just about when I when I'd normally feel this, I want to feel this, okay? Or I'm going to feel this. It's like I, I, I am learning to feel this or I could feel this. The word could is quite powerful. So 
when I would normally feel jealous in this situation, I could feel trusting and peaceful. Could. It's probably more believable. Yeah, I, I could. I, I, I guess I could. Yeah. So if, if you, that's important is that you feel what you're writing. Okay. That's what's more important than actually um, the writing itself. Right? Now, also do is it basically primes your brain to want to utilize those thought patterns when you are in that situation. So now when I saw my girlfriend speaking to a guy, I started to feel more trusting. I'm like, oh, I'm actually triggering those neurons. It actually started to happen, which is beautiful, right? Now, the final piece to this is uh, when you're utilizing um, this concept of uh, future journaling is that, um, yeah, you want to do it consistently. If you're doing something like this, it wants, you want to utilize it in a consistent way. If you're utilizing it in a way that you're just doing it here and there and you're just doing it you know, in a very um, scarce way, it's not going to actually have the um, deeper um, uh, yeah, cultivations of the new patterns that you're wanting to create. So make it believable and make sure that you really choose to learn to embody and feel those experiences. Okay, so there's some tools that you can start to use, right? And um, over time, what's going to happen is you're going to be able to stimulate more what we call this chemical, this, uh, both a uh, hormone and a neurotransmitter, which means it's produced both in the brain and the body. It's a neurotransmitter brain, okay, body, hormone. So it's an endocrine, um, it emits endocrine system, okay. Now, serotonin starts to become more prominent in your life. You start to experience more of this calming chemical. So serotonin is this chemical of I am enough, I have enough, I'm okay, I'm safe, right? That's serotonin. And when serotonin stimulates, serotonin stimulates when people have panic attacks, right? So they're freaking out, high cortisol, high epinephrine, high norepinephrine, right? All the stuff's going on in the body. And then serotonin comes up in large chunks. And that's when we uh, have this um, really weird experience that after a panic attack, we feel maybe some people feel relieved. Some people feel happy after panic attacks. I've actually heard clients speak about this, right? But it's because you've, you've got high amounts of serotonin being produced in the brain um, and the body at the time to try calm the system down. Right, so serotonin helps calm us and it's like an antagonist to this cortisol and um, epinephrine experience that we have. So serotonin starts to be produced and helps us feel more calm and content. Right? And that's by utilizing these tools. That's by finding more calmness in your day, by finding more peace and presence in your day. So utilizing these tools more consistently um, and learning to find more peace and contentment through your day. And someone mentioned contentment before. It's a great, great word. And that's the baseline so that I can start to allow, not build, but allow happiness to flow through me. Happiness will always flow from acting from a place of peace. If happiness doesn't flow when I'm acting, I think I'm peaceful. It's probably not peaceful. I'm probably still, I've still got something in the back of my mind. And that's a good thing because now we can acknowledge it. Okay, well, because I'm not feeling happy right now, there's probably something at the deeper layer of the mind that's going on that I'm not aware of. It's a great um, way to identify that. Right. So hopefully by giving you some basic tools, okay, um, some simple tools to start help start your progression, you can now go out and, um, yeah, really start to make a little bit of change in your own life. That's what this is for. Um, I'd actually, please, if you can, um, either recommend, cheers, Joe, bro. Um, I'd actually recommend you to, um, yeah, go out and not just use these, but share these tools. Um, so I'd love to open the space to questions. So if anyone had any specific questions, anything at all, doesn't even have to be related to something I've shared. It could be anything. Um, yeah, please um, jump on in. Yeah, so happiness is peace and motion. Okay, so peace and motion. All right, so essentially happiness is this state where 
I've created a space of security, a space of safety within myself to enable a state of peace. And then once that peace, that peace is enabled, peace is something that we enable, not create. Because if I try to create peace, I'm just constantly trying to create a peaceful experience with situations, which is not very sustainable, right? Because now I've got to go about every single situation constantly trying to create peace. But if I enable peace through basically creating a safer and secure, more secure state within myself, I will naturally start to feel more peaceful with situations. And as I start to feel more peaceful within myself, I start to see more beauty in life. I start to see the beauty in the tree that's out there because I'm actually able to be purely present with that tree. I start to see beauty a lot more so in my dog because now I'm more present with the dog rather than thinking about my day or thinking about what I need to do next or thinking about my relationship or all these different things. I can be truly present with my dog. So now I'm happy with my dog and my relationship, right? If I'm no longer thinking about I wish you'd do this or I wish you'd say, or he'd say that or whatever it is, right? Um, or I wish you'd do this, right? Then I'm going to be a lot more present and peaceful with the with that person. And then um, I'll be able to have more compassion and happiness within that situation with that person. So happiness is peace in motion and it comes from a state of presence. Presence um, is a state of peace and that comes from a place of first safety and security within. Yeah. Does that answer your question? Yeah, calmness. So Sarah, so I can just go through them really quickly, actually, because um, there's a few others I'd love to share with people and people might already know of and like to know more about. But um, we can talk about how they're stimulated, not how they're created, because how they're created, um, essentially serotonin. Um, I'm just going to just fire these, by the way. You can research these, Google these. You can find them very easily. But essentially, um, serotonin is created through um, first through tryptophan, to 5-HTP and then uh, serotonin, okay? So that's how it's created. And then serotonin creates melatonin, which is why when we have more calmness in our life, we get more quality sleep, okay? Um, simply because the serotonin, the calming chemical, can produce more sleep, okay? And then dopamine, on the other hand, is um, L-tyrosine or tyrosine, okay? Tyrosine then produces L-dopa. L-dopa then produces dopamine. And then dopamine then actually produces adrenaline. Interesting enough, adrenaline comes from dopamine. What? <laughs> Crazy, right? Um, so both um, norepinephrine and epinephrine. So it means uh, adrenaline in the brain and adrenaline from the adrenal glands, which are just above the kidney. Okay, so that's the chain of what sort of occurs. And then um, how to stimulate it, on the other hand, is different. Okay, of course, that's not about how it's created. It's about how it's stimulated. So how it's stimulated in terms of serotonin is... Uh, Anything that's going to create a sense of contentment, anything that's going to create a sense of I am okay or everything around me is okay, that's going to produce serotonin. So some people like to look at gratitude as a serotonin um, production activity. And yeah, it stimulates serotonin great. So a gratitude practice is fantastic. Getting into nature is fantastic. Why? Because now everything around me feels a lot more calm. So I feel more calm, you see. So anything that's going to bring a sense of calm or contentment within myself or around me, it's going to help stimulate this chemical serotonin. Dopamine, anything where it indicates I'm gaining forward momentum of any sort, okay? Be it I'm walking, be it I'm practicing handstands and I handstand for five seconds at a set of four one day, I get dopamine, right? Dopamine is a dangerous one though because many people get dopamine through mindless pursuit rather than 
um, conscious pursuit. Conscious pursuit is consciously choosing to want to build on something or progress on something that I actually has, I can actually see the result that I'm gaining. Mindless pursuit is something like Instagram, scrolling, seeing something I like. Oh, I like that. Double tap, right? And then move on. Oh, I like that. Double tap. Or I get all these likes on my Instagram. I get all these comments on Instagram, right? It feels good. Dopamine. But the problem is, is no actual result apart from the likes and comments, but then obviously it's short term and now I'm attached to that concept of those certain amount of likes and comments and you know all that compassion that people are giving me and then I seek for it more. Why? Because it feels good, right? So dopamine is a problematic situation. It's actually the addictive reason why things like marijuana, which isn't even meant to be addictive, becomes addictive for people. Why? Because it is that dopamine hit. It feels good, right? It's a sense of reward, um, but it's mindless reward. So what we want to create with dopamine is um, actually conscious reward. So that's how to simulate dopamine is either forward momentum where we're progressing with something or actually physically moving forward, right? going for a jog or going for a bike ride. Fantastic way to stimulate dopamine um, more often as well. Um, and it's going to help us feel more empowered or motivated to move forward. So that's dopamine. Oxytocin. This is uh, the love chemical that people talk about. Right? It's actually more to this love chemical than just oxytocin. It's not just oxytocin. There's a lot more else out there, but oxytocin is a popular one. So oxytocin is um, essentially produced by peptide. Okay, um, it's um, produced uh, in a way when we have these um, experiences that indicate love. Right now, that doesn't necessarily mean need to mean romantic love. It can be patting our pet. Right when we're with our pet, we experience oxytocin. That sweetness. That's that sweetness experience. Oxytocin is also, we can experience oxytocin when I look at a bird. I'm like, oh, that's such a cool bird, right? <laughs> I can experience oxytocin when I'm holding hands with someone. When I hug someone, it can be anyone, right? I experience oxytocin when I'm with the person that I love, right? Be a family member or a romantic, right? Or friend, oxytocin. And the final one is um, endorphins. So endorphins, so these are just the popular ones. There's more, more out there. But endorphins are sort of like, um, is that feeling of, um, is the residue of a dopaminergic um, experience. Dopaminergic re- meaning like anything re- um, relating to dopamine. Um, I'm going to have a lot of an endorphin release. So that's why when we go for runs, when we go do a lot of sport, we do a lot of activity, endorphins, right? Or when we do something exciting, endorphins. Okay. So do- endorphins and dopamine usually work together. Serotonin and oxytocin usually work together. So when you stimulate serotonin, you will probably, you definitely actually get a little bit of oxytocin or vice versa. And when you stimulate dopamine, you'll definitely get some endorphins as well. So yeah, hopefully that answers your question a bit. So there's two parts to that question. The first is what's the difference between the gratitude journal and that? And then um, what about the deep layer of the mind? There's a second by the sounds of it. Yeah, cool. So the difference um, is just simply, I resonated with the, future journaling more that is it for me right okay so gratitude journals are fantastic just wasn't for me um i practice gratitude every day um not through a journal personally um although it's a fantastic thing but what generally happens is if i don't connect the emotional experience of gratitude to what i'm writing it's actually not doing anything it's just stimulating thoughts um but if i want to um actually um stimulate a gratitude experience some techniques people can use is the words could or learning to. So for example, I am learning to feel grateful for my family. I could feel grateful for my family, right? So going through um, the gratitude in that way is quite powerful. Another way 
for people to do it might be playing some music that's really nice that makes them feel good and then practice gratitude that can stimulate gratitude a bit more but yeah in terms of the gratitude journal personally um yeah i didn't really find it super beneficial for some people it's great right so that's just um, personal of course when it comes to the gratitude stuff in terms of future journaling um the difference there is just simply yeah of course we're just executing on specific thought patterns um gratitudes are not looking at any of the thought patterns but it's a great process so it's just working on completely different ends and like i'm not comparing one or the other personally like they're just completely different actions um one, one works at the level of thought patterns the other works at the level of trying to produce this experience of gratitude therefore we stimulate more serotonin which is more peace in our lives right so um yeah it's just finding the tools that work for you that resonate with you um now so that's sort of the difference in a rough way um in terms of Working at the deeper layer, you're actually spot on. I'm not actually executing on the root of jealousy if I'm doing future journaling. Um, again, I'm just sharing tools that are, you know, to start the action of momentum around these thought patterns. Um, because if I don't start actually working through the surface level of the thought patterns first, I can't get to the root. Um, unfortunately, it's a little bit different to the garden, the weeds in the garden. Getting to the root of the experience can be very difficult when there's um, so many thought patterns going on that are problematic. I mean, I suppose I could relate it to if I've let the weeds get too chaotic, I can't even see where the roots are because there's so many freaking weeds, right? If it's just completely become a forest of weeds, um, and, uh, I can't find the root of where the weeds are coming from. So I've got to chop down some of the weeds. I suppose that's probably the best analogy I can give around that. So when it comes to future journaling, it's great because I can start to chop down some of these weeds, right? So it's a process, a similar process to like NLP and CBT, cognitive behavior therapy and your linguistic programming, which are just um, therapies that a lot of specialists, uh, therapists and coaches might use. Um, so future, um, future journaling is almost like one aspect of that in a way. Um, but yeah, it's just basically starting to chop down the weeds and then the route to jealousy will be a deeper experience that I've had in the past that seemed problematic and is being reflected consistently throughout my life. So as an example, a root experience might be in some point in time, I might have been um, made to feel not good enough Okay, um, at some point in time. And now I've taken that not good enoughness into the relationship where I'm perceiving myself as I'm not good enough for this person, therefore they're probably going to leave me, um, especially if um, that per if my girlfriend at the time or boyfriend at the time or whatever is, um, you know, seeing, um, is talking to someone else and they've got this big smile on their face and when they speak to me, they don't have that smile on their face, right? So therefore I'm not good enough, right? So it's really the deeper rooted experience that's being reflected. So if I want to work at the deeper root, right, I work on that aspect of me feeling, well, good enough, right? If I feel good enough, then why, why would I need to worry about that other person? Um, because I already feel trusting of myself, therefore I feel trusting of the person. I mean, trust isn't something that is created through me trusting another, it's through first trusting myself. If I can't trust myself, how can I trust another, right? So it's really coming back to that if I want to talk about the root, but if I want to work at the root level, I can't work on feeling good enough if I've constantly got this, these overwhelming thoughts of being triggered, 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 triggered every, um, every, in everything I do, right? So it's about, yeah, working through the layers of the mind is important. Um, and of course, um, yeah, creating a state which in which I can, which means like working on the gut, working on hormones, working on nutrition, um, all these different things that are going to help to bring a, um, a more stable um, state within the body, which means that I'm not super inflamed because um, C-reactive protein, which is uh, the compound they look for, for when they look for inflammation, um, is very correlated to uh, anxiety and depression due to literature, um, based on literature. So 
when they look for anxiety and depression symptoms, they look for inflammation a lot of the time. So it's sort of like a biomarker in a way, but essentially creating a nice state within the body is very helpful. And then working away at the different weeds and cutting them down, cutting them down, cutting them down means I can start to see the exposed roots without needing to react to the next weed, to the next sort pattern, to the next weed, to the next sort pattern, right? So it's really just um, cutting it down, cutting it down. And then when I start to see the weed, the roots, I'm like, oh, there's a root. Now I can go deep into that sensational experience where every time I'm in a situation uh, that stimulates that experience, I can learn to become a lot more at peace with the experience rather than trying to focus on becoming at peace with the external experience I'm now focusing on. Okay, I can focus on the internal experience, right? Because I'm not as triggered as I used to be. And I'm not as triggered as I used to be. Now I can focus on the sensation rather than focusing on the external experience because it's the sensation I'm actually reacting to. If I didn't get this triggering sensation within me, right? If I didn't get, sorry, if I didn't get that really harsh sensation within me, I wouldn't be triggered because there's nothing to be triggered by. If I'm just simply seeing a, a um, you know, my girlfriend at the time speaking to this guy, and um, I'm just simply observing that. If I'm not getting a strong sensation in my body that stimulates the thought of, um, oh, she's speaking to this guy, and those groups of neurons then trigger other groups of neurons which are associated with uh, me not being good enough, then I'm not going to start to think about um, yeah, her leaving me or her going for this other guy or anything like that. I'm now going to be in a situation where... Um, I'm just simply seeing the situation, the experience. I'm not creating a new meaning in my own mind about the situation. So when I can see the situation just as it is, which is just she's simply speaking to a guy, that is it. No meaning attached, nothing. To come to that, I must first become what we call equanimous or neutral with the sensation within me, meaning I'm not reacting to the sensation, meaning I'm not creating meaning so the other neurons are attached or stimulated based on the neurons of when my girlfriend speaks to another guy, then yeah, I'm no longer going to react to that. So yeah, hopefully in a long gated sort of way, I've sort of answered your question. Cool. Thanks, Chantel. All right. So... I think that's it. Um, yeah, if anyone else has any questions, um, yeah, you can obviously just shoot me a message or anything like that. Um, I, I do want to um, cut it here. It's been going on long enough. Um, but yeah, I'll be, have this as a podcast so you'll be able to access it on Pocket Coach, as I mentioned. Um, but yeah, thank you all for coming. Um, yeah, I really appreciate it. Um, this isn't just about, um, yeah, um, coming in and uh, learning here. It's also about the actions that you do from here that are going to enable for more peace for yourself and for others around you and in your lives and of course if you feel called to please yeah go ahead and share um, some of the learnings if you feel called to as well um yeah thank you very much <sighs> all right guys that's me i am i am done for today my brain is done uh, but yeah thanks for coming guys honestly i really appreciate it um yeah i appreciate you guys for joining all right anyway take care guys i'm gonna Shoot off now. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this episode. Now, if you found that this episode was beneficial, please subscribe, share. Um, it, honestly, it really helps us when you take that few seconds to subscribe and even leave a brief review. Uh, this enables us to reach more people that possibly need this information, especially those that are suffering uh, with mental health. Uh, a lot of this information can be very beneficial for those people. So, 
uh, yeah, please do what you can to enable us to reach more people. Uh, it really helps us. As of course, this information is completely free. Uh, I'm honestly not getting anything out of it. I don't even run ads on this podcast. <laughs> so uh, this is all to serve people as much as possible. Yeah. So all I ask is if you can, um, yeah, please share it or help us reach more people through adding to uh, the subscription or reviews. That would be very beneficial. Anywho. Uh, also, I want to give you the heads up that you can uh, find me on Instagram under Coach Kezza, Coach Kezza, K-E-Z-Z-A, excuse my New Zealand accent, <laughs> and you can find our Instagram of The Pocket Coach, literally at The Pocket Coach. All this stuff is in the description of this audio as well, so you can find all that there. Uh, you can find me on TikTok as well, Coach Kezza, um, that seems to be doing quite well, I'm excited about where that's heading. And finally as well, I've got another podcast with short snippets called Healing with Kez. Kez is K-E-Z, Healing with Kez, again, all in the description. And finally, my website is www.healingwithkez.com. You can find uh, coaching there as well if that ends up being something that you want to pursue long term. All right, well, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for tuning in very, very much. I really appreciate it. Every listen counts and then any information that you gather. Um, I'm just glad that you're out there um, doing what you can to better yourself and better others. So that's, um, that's encouraging for me. Uh, lots of love. May you find all the peace and happiness that you have available. You deserve it. You really do. And you're capable of it. So take this new information and go kick some ass. Eh? <laughs> all right. Much love. Singing on.